0: This reading from Luke's Gospel today is almost too precious. It's so sweet and, and wonderful. It's a, it's a beautiful reminder of the gentleness of Jesus, of His willingness to, to bring anyone into the circle of faith, even if it's a tiny infant. The, wor- the word there in Greek means tiny baby. Even if it's a tiny little baby just born, seven, eight, nine pounds, whatever it might be. For some reason, the disciples don't want the babies to be brought to Jesus. Maybe they've got a board meeting to get to. I, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe they need to count the offering. Or maybe they just think they're too high on the top of Jesus' list to bother themselves or let Jesus be bothered with little children. Maybe they think, as my uh, 23 and 28-year-old sons would say, maybe they think they're dope. Do you know that word? I learned it the other day. Dope means cool or hip or groovy or, or neat or something like that. Maybe they just think they're better than everybody else. And so they're saying, oh, no, keep the kids away. And Jesus in that marvelous Marvelous action says, no, please, please, bring, bring the children, let them come to me. If, if you want to see a, a living, breathing example of what that looks like, of how that, how that is seen in our own congregation, someday come over to the church and watch the children and the youth choirs rehearse with Sally Besky. She has this wonderful, welcoming spirit, this sweet way of inviting them into the circle, of helping them learn the music, while also discovering the joy of, of God's love. It's, it's wonderful to watch. I say this all the time. I wanna, I wanna say it again and be very clear. The children and youth of our church are not the future of our congregation. They are already a part now of our church. They're already a part of who we are and who we say we are. It's a beautiful thing to see our children in ministry and in life and in love together. Children also are not only reminders of, of, the, of Jesus' call to welcome anyone and everyone, they're also the sort of persons who are, are the, the truth tellers. They're the ones who'll say what everyone else is thinking sometimes. My good buddy, Mike Iaconelli, he's in the resurrection now, but he was a great preacher. I'd, I'd say he's one of the top five preachers I've ever heard in my, in my life. But even Mike can every once in a while, like any preacher, have a sermon that doesn't quite come together. And Mike made that, that typical mistake of thinking, well, if I just add a little bit more. Oh, I got to fix this. Well, I add a little bit more over here. And, and it just kept getting longer and longer. Now, he preached typically 45-minute sermons, but this one was getting up close to an hour, and he just kept going. And he got towards what he thought was finally the end, and he said, oh, you know what? I've really got one more story. And there was this little boy sitting right on the very front row next to his parents, bored out of his mind. He stood up on the chair and said, please Stop. <laughs> If any of you do that, if any of you do that, please don't. <laughs> but why is this story here? Why, why is it that, that Luke, in his gospel, has inserted this little, this little vignette about Jesus and the children? It's sweet, it's wonderful, and, and, and all of that, but there have been a couple of parables, and then there's some more parables after, and... You know Jesus is in the middle of at least as far as Luke is recording it is in the middle of teaching all these these stories and, and giving great points on how to live a life of faith and so forth And then all of a sudden oh they wouldn't bring the children to him and Jesus said bring them in order to understand at this this little tale here at a deeper level we have to see why Luke put it in you see right before this this part that Missy read a moment ago Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector I'm sure you know it. Let me remind you of it. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, were not, like the way, we're not viewed the way we view them. That word Pharisee has a negative connotation in our culture and understanding. Pharisees in Jesus' day were well-respected, well-trained, well-educated clergy, usually financially well-off. They were the kind of persons that everyone else wanted to be like. That's who they were in their community. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were colluding with a foreign government, the Romans, getting rich off the backs of their friends and neighbors. Tax collectors were hated. These, are, these two persons are as far apart as you can possibly be in the culture of Jesus' day. And Jesus tells this story of, a, of, of the Pharisee, a religious leader, a religious man, in other words. A man who is, who is there, who's, who's well-dressed, got on a nice blue suit, a, a beautiful tie, not garish or loud, nice pair of shoes. He drives a beautiful car, brand new car, close to being brand new. Again, not too flashy though. And he says in his prayer, they step, they step outside the temple just as they're coming into worship and they pray. The Pharisee says, this religious man says, Lord, I, I, I've given my life to you. I give 10% of my income before taxes. And, and in fact, all of my investments, I share 10% of all that I have with the church. I do everything I can to share with you and I lead a life according to your law and the way you instruct us to. And I thank, I thank God that I'm not like that, that. I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector, that terrible, evil, awful man over there. And that same tax collector is also praying. Now imagine the way he's dressed. He's, he's, he's wearing a, a pair of leather pants and a, and a, a silk shirt that's, that's open four or five buttons. And you can see eight or nine or 10 or 12 gold chains around his neck. And he's got a couple of characters with him who are not nice looking people and kind of scary looking as a matter of fact. They're his bodyguards. And yet, unlike the Pharisee, his shoulders are, are slumped. His gaze is, is downward. He can barely choke out his prayer. Lord, I, God, I'm, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm the worst you've ever seen. Forgive me. Jesus ends the parable by saying, the tax collector went home justified, made right, brought back into the center, and the Pharisee did not. Go then, and remember, Jesus says, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I love this story. It is absolutely pure grace. It's, it's the message I've been preaching my entire life. The, the idea that when we look carefully at ourselves and we give ourselves openly and honestly before God, God loves us and receives us and forgives us. And that forgiveness goes on forever. Romans 8 says there is nothing, not even your own mistakes, our own mistakes or failures or sin or whatever that can separate us from the love of God. It's a beautiful story. But there's that strange line at the end. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. How do you humble yourself? Have you ever tried to do that? it doesn't quite work, does it? Now, I I know that uh, that Dr. Wing was here for 23 years, and I worked for Dick for seven years as his associate minister out in California before he he came here. I'm pretty sure you probably heard his joke about this very idea. Do you remember the story that Dick would always say? He's writing a new book, Humility and How I Attained It. Yeah, it's kind of a groaner, I understand. The seven years I worked for Dick, I heard it 4,312 times. And I always laughed because it's true. You just can't do that. You can't humble yourself. You know, I've sat down with some wonderful meals before, and I'll say to the cook or the chef, wow, that meal was great. Thank you so much. And then he or she will say, yeah, but, you know, I think I had a little bit too much salt on the beef, and I don't know, the potatoes didn't quite come together. And it's like, no, 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 just say thank you. Just just please. False humility doesn't work. If somebody likes something you've done, say thank you. Maybe you can relate to this one too. I, I went to see my major professor, Dr. Fred Norris, on the day that I was graduating from seminary. I went up to him, I gave him a handshake and a hug, and I said, Dr. Norris, you've just been great for me. I really appreciate you. If I help one person in my ministry as much as I've helped you, as you've helped me, I'll be a success. Dr. Norris laughed out loud. Why are you laughing, sir? Why why the laughter? He said, Miles, and he got real serious. That's a bunch of nonsense. If you only help one person in the next 30 years, we didn't train you very well, and we failed as an educational institution. Check that false humility at the door, and you go and be the pastor you're called to be. And then he slapped me on the back and said, that's my last lecture, and I'll go graduate. You see, that that false humility, it it doesn't work. It does no one any good. Luke knows this too. Luke understands that this this strange idea of humbling yourself is a weird thing. And so then he inserts this story. Do you see what he's done? He says, "Ah, so for example... In light of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector, there was this one time when the disciples were all telling the kids to stay away, and the parents to stay away, and, and there were these women and, and, and men bringing their little tiny infants to Jesus, and they tried to keep them aside, and Jesus said, no, no, bring them to me. For in order to receive the kingdom of heaven, you must be like one of these little ones. In other words, In order to participate in the fullness of the life that God wants to share with the world, rely on God, on the spirit, on the the power of the universe, whatever name works for you, rely on that one. As a child, as as a newborn, depends on her mother. As an infant, depends on his father. Live your life like that in reliance on God and on reliance on each other in the community of faith, and you'll begin to discover something of what the kingdom of heaven is like. I'm thinking this morning of a friend of mine in Kansas City. She, she attends the church that I used to lead. She sits over on the, on the right-hand side about four or five rows back. I could, if she wasn't in church, I'd know because she sat in the same spot every week. She always volunteered to feed the homeless on Monday nights, participated in the book studies, would buy the books, would go to the film classes, would uh, would volunteer to drive kids on their mission trips, all sorts of wonderful things like that, was a faithful giver, everything, and she was an atheist. She said to me one day though, she said, you know, I may not believe in God, but I'm starting to believe in the way of Jesus, in this church, in the friendship that I've experienced, in the intimacy of getting to know others, I'm starting to see what Jesus' love looks like. I'm starting to feel and experience what it is to be a part of something larger and greater than myself. Still an atheist, she said. Although if if she were here, I would argue a little bit and say, you know, you're one of the most deeply spiritual persons I've, I've ever encountered. Say what you will, but it's almost as though the Spirit of God is working through you. In fact, by the way, just an aside here, I'm fairly certain that God prefers kind and loving atheists to angry, judgmental, mean-spirited Christians. You can quote me anytime. The way she lived her life is the way that Jesus wants to see us in the lives of these children. They're creating this sense of intimacy, of community, of life with God and, and life with each other. Of course, there's a vulnerability that comes to that. It's, there's there's a, a, an emptying of one's uh, uh, self, of being willing to be seen for who you really are, for who we really are. I'm thinking of my friend Dan this morning. Dan said to me uh, several years ago, "You know, you, you preach a lot about pain and, and sorrow and sadness, and it seems like you, that kind of weaves its way into your sermons." And I got to tell you, I got a I got a great life. In fact, Dan and I became pretty good friends. Dan is about my age. He had had children about the same age as our kids, and so we were encountering a lot of the same things. Dan was an aging, aching athlete uh, like me, and I use the term athlete use loosely. Uh, so there's a lot that we shared. But but he was just like, you know, I just I look at my family, everything. It's all oh, it's great it's wonderful and so yeah, I just I just wanted to give you that feedback and we got to be really good friends and about a year later Dan opened up about some stuff and it had to do with his with his parents and his in-laws and his children and his and his grandparents and his friends and his neighbors and his job and it's just starting to sound familiar just some stuff and then a few months later I took a risk you know, I went to lunch about every three months just to keep the friendship alive. I said, Dan, I, I need a friend. We've been dealing with some things with our kids and our family, and it's been really hard. And I, I just want to share with you what's, what's going on. I, I won't give you the details of it, but it was a pretty tough moment. We'd had some tough moments with, with our kids. After about 30 minutes, Dan said, I want you to know something. If you quit tomorrow as our pastor you'll still be my friend I'll be your friend for as long as it takes so that we can help each other get through all that we're encountering that's that intimacy that that God is inviting us to to rely on God and to to rely on on the other I shared with him that that in, in this in this welcoming of the infants in this welcoming of of the little ones Jesus is saying to us that's how we're invited to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. It's about becoming intimate. Now when I use that word intimate or intimacy, I don't mean small. I don't necessarily mean tiny. In fact, one of the most intimate experiences I've ever had was with 80,000 people at the football stadium in Cleveland a year ago. We weren't there for a football game. We were there to watch Bono sing with his band, his rock band U2. And there was a moment in the middle of the concert when they sang that iconic song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Do some of you know it? Still haven't found what I'm looking for. The stadium lights went down, everybody pulled out their phone and turned on their flashlight. It was unbelievable. Bono just filled that arena with the powerful, powerful beautiful voice. And then he dropped the mic in the middle of the chorus and all 80,000 of us without any accompaniment in pure acapella sang together, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I looked at Julie and, and she was crying. And I noticed my allergies were acting up and uh, I was having an issue there myself. You see, isn't that, that, that this intimacy is this willingness to, to open our hearts, our souls, our minds to God and to each other and a, a willingness to take a risk to become the one that God has called us to be. Last week, during my quiet reading, I, by, in a book by one of my favorite writers, I came upon a chapter that he titled, Who Will Cry at My Funeral? And he made a list of those who won't cry at his funeral. His critics, people that he would tried to use for something for his own gain, rich people that he knew and some other famous people that he knew. He thought if he hung around these famous people, he could get famous. He makes a whole list, about eight or nine categories of people. And then he said, Who will cry at my funeral? Before I read his list, I made my list. And they were almost exactly the same. My wife, my children, my family, my deepest, closest friends. Who will cry at your funeral? If if there's anything you take away from this sermon today, take this with you. Give the best of who you are to those who care for you the most. Make time for them and their lives. Because that's the place where the kingdom of heaven will be made real for you in your life. I quoted my friend Mike Iaconelli earlier in in the sermon. As I said, Mike is in the resurrection now. But I want to close with this quote from his second to last book. Mike lived this wild roller coaster sort of life. He believed that, that the life of faith ought to be like a wild roller coaster, up and down and turns and stwi- fast uh, going and pauses and then deep descents and all kinds of things. That that's what faith is about, and that's the way to live it. And he wanted to go sliding into heaven saying, Wow, God, what a ride! What an amazing ride! And I'm pretty sure that's what he did. That's the way he lived and preached and taught. And in his book, Dangerous Wonder, he says this I'm going to quote him listen, it is time. To find the place where the dangerous wonder of faith can be discovered. A place landscaped by risky curiosity, wild abandon, daring playfulness, quiet listening, irresponsible passion, happy terror, and naive grace. I just love that whole phrase. Naive grace. In a day when most of us are tired. Listen. In a day when most of us are tired. Worn out. Thirsty. Starving for life and joy and peace. Maybe it's time to become a child again. Sisters and brothers and friends, there ain't no maybe. It's time. The time to let go of all the pretense, the time to let go of all the stuff that holds us back from fully embracing the spirit, fully embracing the the intimacy and the friendship of the other is now. It's time to become like a child and come to God expecting nothing more than God's love.